Hello and welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today we have David Washer, Chief Product and Technology Officer at Zoopla. Zoopla is one of the industry's leading property portals and also one of the UK's first unicorns. It's a pleasure to have you on Riding Unicorns today, David. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Great. So, David, we always like to start by taking people back right to the beginning of their career and getting the context of what they've done to date and then leading all the way up to how you got involved with Zoopla. Yeah, I mean, I've had the great fortune of having many, many amazing experiences in my career. I started out at Microsoft when I was 21 years old, working on Internet Explorer back when Internet Explorer was the browser people really liked. And I had a number of roles at Microsoft, but when I joined, it was the most amazing place on the planet to work. All of the things we hear about free lunches at Google and, you know, Facebook providing, you know, doing everyone's dry cleaning, like all of those perks and environments were derivative of what Microsoft was really creating at the beginning of the millennium. And I was at Microsoft for 14 years. I moved to the UK to follow my now wife, who is English. She was at Microsoft, but decided to change careers and become a veterinarian and the best fit for both of us in terms of me finding a place for tech and her ability to find a vet school in relatively close proximity was London. So we moved to London. In London, I've had, again, the great fortune to have some really amazing job opportunities. I worked as the chief product and technology officer for Moo.com, working with the founder there, Richard Moross. I went from there to create what was effectively the kind of new product innovation incubator for TravelX. So TravelX, the people who rip you off at the airport when you go and exchange your travel money, a 40-year-old bricks and mortar business, and they were really looking to try and create a presence of online digital products. That was an absolutely amazing experience, wouldn't trade it for anything. Went from TravelX to working at the Photobox Group. The Photobox Group is comprised of a couple of different brands that UK listeners would be familiar with, one being Photobox, the other being Moonpig. But the Photobox Group also includes the German and Spanish versions of Photobox, which are companies called Poster, XXL, and Hoffman, but also the Dutch version of Moonpig, which is a really cool company based in Amsterdam called Greets. And then I left there about a year and a half ago, maybe a bit longer, and joined Zoopla at the end of 2019. And that's where I find myself today. Awesome. That's amazing. You've worked at a number of very high growth companies, and now you're at Zoopla. What made you want to join Zoopla in particular? Well, when I left Photobox, I was going to take a year off. And for whatever reason, I took the phone call from the recruiter, which is unlike me. I just, I wasn't looking and I don't really often take phone calls from recruiters. And I took the call and they gave me the kind of pitch on the Zoopla opportunity. And it was just too good to pass up. Just so many things about it that were appealing. The investors were amazing. Silver Lake and Red Ventures are just obviously world-class, kind of super high quality tech investors the opportunity that Zoopla has. Like Zoopla has a number of different assets that in combination, a real sustainable competitive advantage. They're a structural advantage that Zoopla has. They have the consumer-facing portal, but they also have the agent-facing software. And then they have the lender-facing automated valuation company, HomeTrack. And so the opportunity to take those assets and put them together to deliver something amazing 
was just too good to pass up. And equally, the industry, like not a lot of interesting things have happened in the property industry in the last decade. In the intervening time between when all the portals were created and today, like you've got Uber didn't exist, right? Like Deliveroo didn't exist. Netflix didn't exist. All of the services that we've come to know and love and become a central part of our digital lives today didn't exist. And there aren't that many consumer-facing online industries that just have stood still, that haven't changed in a decade, but the property industry, for whatever reason, is one of them. And for me, that's an itch that I absolutely have to scratch. I can't not do it. It's just something that I have to go do. So all of those things in combination were too good to pass up. So I didn't get my year off. I got six weeks off, which I remind my boss of every time we meet. I think he owes me the better part of a year at some point. But yeah, that's why I joined Zuplo. It was an easy decision. Awesome. So I'm going to jump ahead slightly, but so things haven't changed that much. So what are the exciting developments that you're now seeing in the prop tech space and is there anything that Zoopla is working on that you can share with us? <laughs> We're doing lots of amazing things at Zoopla, some of which I can maybe give you a flavor for, but many of them are in progress. But the prop tech space is fascinating. I mean, I think people have figured out that there's a massive surface area for people to go and really create new value, new value for consumers, new value for people looking for homes, new value for people looking to rent, new value for people who are trying to sell their homes but equally the other actors in the industry. So new value for estate agents, new value for new homes, builders, surveyors, lenders, solicitors, all of those actors. It's a really archaic, frustrating, and frequently opaque process today. And so there's a massive opportunity that a lot of people are starting to recognize. And you've seen that the kind of volume of new entrants in this space has started to go up. And the general kind of categories that we're seeing people come into are a couple one, you've got those players that are trying to connect these different actors, right? Try to take what today is a largely manual process for coordinating and communicating a complex process and simplify that for everybody. That's one category of players that you're seeing enter into the space. It is interesting in that you've got people, we've got a wealth of data, right, in this industry. And you've got people who are trying to use that data to help the different players in the industry make better decisions, help them be better informed, you know, even use it to do predictive elements of the process. Something we're investing in at Zoopla heavily is how do we take the wealth of data across the vast estate that we have and turn that into insights that we can then provide to our customers to help them have easier day jobs, to expedite the process, to make smarter decisions, to increase their profit margin. So, Lots of really fascinating things happening in the industry right now. In terms of what we're up to, I've alluded to it already. We've got a lot going on. We've spent the last year and a bit really rebuilding. Um, Zoopla has variously kind of had many different chapters in its history from being a startup to being you know, one of the first unicorns in the UK to then being a publicly held company. When our investors, Silver Lake, purchased the company, they took it private. And so, as you might expect along the way, kind of things like design, things like product, things like an investment in those customers, some of those things get de-invested, under-invested in. Capability was really emaciated quite a bit. So we spent the last you know, year and a bit kind of rebuilding that capacity. We've hired 140 people into our technology organization. We've got a really great set of people that have joined our marketing organization, our sales organization 
is flying right now. So in the process of rebuilding and putting in the modern tools, rebuilding a really great data science team and analytics team to go and do some of these things, to go and take that vast footprint that we have and help make lives easier for all of those actors that are involved to use data to make, again, to make and predictive analytics, behavioral analytics to create value for our users. Those are some of the things that we're investing in. We're excited and we'll be rolling some of those things out in the coming months. That's awesome. So apart from making shrewd investments in talent, which obviously you've highlighted there has been a really important part of breathing new energy into the business. What other challenges are there in trying to get a big company to keep innovating and looking at the next frontier? I know it feels like a big company. It's not that big. It's about 550 people, which depending on your, I guess, perspective could be big or small, but it's not a massive company. Certainly given the brand awareness and, and the kind of position it holds in the consciousness of the UK. But the biggest challenge with any cultural transformation, and I've been party to many in my time in the UK, any kind of cultural transformation or call it a digital transformation, if you will, it are, the, are the human beings. It's always the biggest challenge. People don't like change. Human beings are inherently embrace the status quo. It's just human nature. And so driving change, kind of new investors, et cetera, is something that can create anxiety for people and great discomfort. And there are always a set of people who really embrace it and are excited by it, but it's change and that's tough for a lot of humans. And so that's always the challenge. And we've got a, a reasonably brand new executive team. We've invested a ton in talent across the business. We had some very talented people there at the outset of the journey that have been through the other parts of the journey as well. So this has been relatively easy, I think, as these things go. I mean, we're really well aligned, running downhill with the wind at our back. But so it's been refreshing. It's been fun. Yeah, awesome. So slightly different tack here, but you're also a product advisor at Kindred Capital, which is one of the largest funds in the UK. How did that come about? Did they approach you or did you approach them? How did you get involved with Kindred? Two friends of mine also happened to be advisors for them in different capacities. And Michelle Coventry, she's an absolutely brilliant kind of HR chief people officer kind of person who advises for them. And then Mary Williams, who's held the CTO role at a number of brands that we're all familiar with. So Moo.com, Monzo. She had senior engineering role at Marks and Spencer in their digital division. They both reached out when Kindred started looking for product advisors in this case and connected me with Kindred. And I met with them and we gelled very quickly. Hopefully it was an easy process for them. It was certainly an easy process for me. And it's been one of the great pleasures of kind of my working life for the last couple of years has been to be a part of the team there. Yeah. And they've got a very unique model, haven't they, in terms of kind of bringing everyone within the portfolio to be a kind of stakeholder within a central organization. So can you just explain a little bit about that kind of unique model that Kindred's developed? Yeah, it is unique. And it's one of the things that I found really attractive and it really fits with the values of the principles there, the managing directors and the principles, which is to create a community and a support infrastructure and a scaffolding for everybody that they invest in. So they go to great lengths to, they have a pool of advisors like myself, who I spend a lot of time with their portfolio companies, advising them on various things to do with product and tech and culture. 
but equally they invest in coaching, like executive coaching, like the expense, the expensive kind of executive coaching in, in all of their CEOs. They run several one to many kinds of events and they do trainings. They have community events, you know, communities of practice. And so they're really invested in trying to create an environment where the community of the portfolio companies all support each other and everyone, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that is also fundamental, as you noted, to their business model, which is that every founder, every advisor has a portion of carry in their fund, right? Everyone is invested in everyone else. Everyone has a vested interest in the success of all of the companies in the portfolio. And when the fund exits, whether or not you've been wildly successful or merely successful uh, as one of their portfolio companies, everyone will benefit. And so I think develops a bond, it develops a community in a way that is just way less cold and transactional than a typical VC firm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's definitely a kind of new model, but something that must be attracting the best founders and the best advisors. So it's really amazing to see. So you get to work with a lot of founders. Do you think you go and scratch a founder itch one day? I do think I will. I've flirted with it on and off over the years. I actually did. I did found a company. I actually left Microsoft after a year, founded a company, raised some money, failed, gave the money back. Uh, Fortunately, we gave my my only point of pride in that experience was we gave 100% of the investment back. Nobody lost any money. Uh, And I ended up going back to Microsoft. So that was a fun, painful at the time, but valuable experience. I would love to. I really do. I mean, I Again, I'm in the fortunate position of working with a lot of these founders and I get to experience vicariously through them the kind of pressures and the high amplitude of um, euphoria and despair that they experience on a daily basis as founders of businesses. My hope is that we're wildly successful at Zoopla and we, we create something really special in the next couple of years. But when it comes time for me to do the next thing, I think it might be doing something that I found. Yeah. And... Do you think that would be in PropTech or would it be in something completely different? <laughs> I'm not wed to a domain. I mean, as evidenced by, you know, my career, like I worked in tech, you know, pure tech at Microsoft and I worked in consumer online there as well. I worked in online travel, online shopping. Then I went to Moo and we did business cards and office stationery. Then I went to TravelX and we did travel money and credit cards and we built a bank, in fact. Photobox was photo books and greetings cards, right? And now I'm on the property. So I'm not wed to a domain that the, the domain isn't the thing that interests me. It's the customer problem and the ability to do something interesting to make somebody's life easier. So that's, I guess that's been part of my challenge in deciding what to do is that I don't have a particular passion for a particular domain. I think one of the interesting things about the, the companies that are in the kindred portfolio and the companies that I advise is these are founders who have an itch that they have to scratch. It's a problem that they have, that they want to solve inevitably. And that's how they describe it. And they didn't decide to be an entrepreneur. They didn't decide to be a founder. They just needed to solve this problem. And I currently don't feel that strongly about anything to go and do something like that. But I think, and I've been fortunate to have reasonably senior positions in these companies where I effectively play the role of a founder or at least work with a small set of people who've effectively act as a founder. TravelX was an absolutely amazing opportunity to start a team from zero. So we took a team from zero to about 120 people. 
in a very short period of time. That felt the closest thing to be a founder. I had took great pride in building the team, building the culture. I learned more probably during that experience than I have had in a long time. So it's probably the closest thing that I've felt to being a founder thus far. And again, the draw there wasn't travel money or exchange or FX. It was building a team and building a culture. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I would go do. My wife is a veterinarian. We often talk about going and doing something in that space, you know, and so maybe I'll do something in the veterinary space when I do my next thing. Cool. Nice. And so you advise founders on products and everything. So if someone was think, sitting on an idea at the moment and they're listening to this and they're thinking, right, I need to go and build a product. What's one bit of advice that you'd give them to start with this or go and do this so it will save you lots of time? I think the barriers to building something now are, I mean, they're so low that it's effectively free to start a global online company, right? The cost of compute and storage with something like AWS is effectively zero. The tools out there that enable you to build like no code apps and things like that, again, are incredibly easy to use. So there aren't that many barriers to doing something. I think the biggest barriers probably, in my experience, for most people are in their own head, right? I think a lot of people who think about starting something, they just talk themselves out of it because they can think of all the things that can go wrong, right? They can enumerate the long list of risks and challenges and why the competition already exists and the company, why someone's already doing this. Why would we do this? How can we be different? And they enter into a downward spiral of constantly talking them out of doing anything. Whereas the interesting things about the founders that I advise is like, they don't, they don't listen to that voice in their head. Like they just go and do this thing. They don't take no for an answer. People that challenge them, they just ignore. And that can be good or bad. I'm not trying to lionize that kind of behavior because more of them fail than succeed. But I think the the difference is they just do it. And I think just doing it, there's value in momentum, right? There's value in forward momentum. And I don't mean to sound like a Nike ad here, but like, in fact, I wasn't thinking about that at all. But there is value in starting something. And once you start something, you recognize that all the things you were afraid of, most of them don't come to pass. Some of them you never anticipated happen, but most of those concerns don't come to pass. Like the competition is lazy, right? And they probably lost sight of the customer. It's free to, other than paying for people, like it's basically free to run a company these days. It's easy to find money. Like we didn't touch on that with Kindred, but like Kindred really tries to put a stake in the ground to differentiate themselves in the eyes of founders because there's so much money out there. It's really hard to differentiate yourself as an investor. So it's easy to find money. It's free to run a company other than paying for the talent. The thing that blocks people is overthinking it and talking themselves out of it. And I think I would just encourage people to start, just to start. Yeah. I quite like Bubble, but what's your favorite no-code, low-code platform? Oh, gosh, I haven't used any in a while. I mean, it's not really exactly what we're talking about, but I've, I've seen a bunch of people start entire businesses on Squarespace just because they get their MVP up and running on Squarespace. You can take payments now. You don't need to worry about PSPs or GDPR or any of that kind of stuff um, just to see if it works, just to, see, just to test the concept. So it's not exactly the no-code platform that you're talking about, but um, that's a good one. I think it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. We recently built something on the side just using Typeform and Stripe. Yeah. Exactly. 
collective payments and it all works out well. Typeform is turning into a really interesting product. Yeah, it's incredible. And with the Stripe integration as well, you can literally yep. get an email through saying someone's just paid you and now you've got to do something, but you've basically got all the information, you've already been paid, <laughs> you just need to reply with whatever they're requesting, which is our product did. So that's that's really great. So we're going to ask two more questions now. So if you could have started one other company in the world, which company would that be? An existing company. Ideally, but... Or a fictional company. You can whatever you want. <laughs> if I could have started another company, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of Netflix in that they've demonstrated an ability to reinvent themselves, not two times or, or even three times, but arguably four different times. And I really value kind of any company that can, in the face of massive amounts of inertia, continue to push forward proactively. Like they've had some famous, you know, kind of fails, right? When they tried to split off their DVD operations from streaming, like they had some famous fails, which is great. It just speaks to their kind of willingness to drive big change. I don't fully subscribe to some of their cultural things. I like their boldness and how they treat their talent, but it's just probably not necessarily my taste in terms of creating such an internally competitive environment amongst peers. Like the teams I build, I tend to more try to create shared incentives in collaborative environments. And from the outside looking in and from friends who work at Netflix, it's not necessarily the culture, but I admire what they've done. I mean, you know, when you think back to whenever it was, 2008, something like that, like the CEO of Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix for $200 million, I think, and they passed. So just to see what they've become since then. And the other thing I really admire, you know, A, they've been able to reinvent themselves. B, they're constantly trying to innovate to serve their users. Last night I was watching Netflix and I was, they've got that skip the intro button, right? Like they introduced that probably what, six or seven months ago. Like they clearly watched their users, watched the kind of, oh, got to fast forward through the intro. Oh, I fast forwarded too far because it's, it's a pain in the ass. And they said, so now they're fast forwarding back and forth and it takes them longer to actually get to the start of the show than it would have had they just watched the intro. So they put a skip the intro button. And for me, that's just a small sign of, it's a manifestation of their culture. So I admire them for those reasons, not fully for all the things they do internally, but I think it's a really cool company. Yeah. Awesome. And then last question, if you could have a working lunch with anyone, who would that be? So I struggled with this one. I knew you were going to ask me this and <laughs> I still struggle. So I thought of a few answers that popped into my head. One was Salman Khan, who founded the Khan Academy. He, for me, for those people who don't know, I mean, look it up. It's, it's an amazing online. I think the first or certainly the first that gained real scale um, online learning platform. And it was born out of the fact that he, Salman Khan started tutoring his nephews in math and he found out that he really enjoyed it. And so he decided to try and build a company around it. And it's become this amazing learning platform where they've really started not only to provide just content, but also think about how kids or people learn and kind of really turn learning on its head and I've always admired that. It was first the first one of the first examples for me in my career of someone who took tech and did something really socially 
good with it. There are lots of examples, but the first one that really struck me was Khan Academy. And actually, I have to say, like the other day, I was thinking the poet from the American inauguration, Amanda Gorman, like she's 22 years old. She had this absolutely breathtaking poem that she wrote and performed at the inauguration. And she's 22. Like, where do you go from here when you're 22? And that's what you're doing. So I would love to meet her. But I think perhaps more locally to us here in London, there's an author, Alain de Botton, who writes these amazing pseudo-satirical but deeply thoughtful books that I absolutely love. I've seen him do readings a couple of times in bookstores in the States and in the UK, actually. And I would love to meet him at some point as well. Well, that would be quite the lineup for a lunch, I think, the, the conversation. If we had all three of them, yeah, I think it'd be great. <laughs> yeah, very philosophical conversation going on, I'm sure. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us your riding unicorn story. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and we wish you all the best with Zoopla and everything in the future. Great, James. Thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it.